Hello everybody, this is Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Jose. I'm Mike. And today we have as a special guest, Laura Creven, event planner, uh, uh, gal about town, and huge film fan, uh, as well as a, as, as a prominent uh, uh, blogger. So I wanted, we wanted, uh, to have her here, especially today, because we are looking at our third Michael Curtiz film. Fourth. Fourth, sorry, fourth. Uh, fourth Michael Curtiz film. Uh, Mildred Pierce, and it's a very, very famous um, Warner Brothers mixture of film noir and women's film, and we thought it would be really, you know, kind of interesting to have, you know, a woman's point of view on a woman's film. Uh, so what did you think of it, Laura? I loved it. Uh -huh. I really enjoyed it. Uh-huh. So what, what did you enjoy about it? What resonated with you? Uh, I enjoyed that a lot of the interesting characters were women uh -huh. um, and actually the male characters were a little bit more two-dimensional. Uh -huh. um, ideally it would be nice to have everybody as, as rounded figures but usually we're so used to seeing it the other way around right. and it was nice to see that the kind of focus and the intrigue were on, on the kind of main characters both the mother and daughter but also the kind of side characters were still strong females as well. Okay. Okay, interesting. What did you think, Mike? Because I know we had to drag him here. <laughs> Though he's being very kind. It's, it's his fourth Michael Curtiz film. Yes. Uh, I liked it. You know, I've got a bit of a cold as well. I might explain my, my voice. Um, I did like it. And um, for the same reasons that you did, Laura, as well as being... Um, you know, it sets up this mystery at the start. of You see this guy get shot and he says Mildred. Yes. And you think, oh, maybe that's the name of his sled, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, clearly the question is who killed him and why. Uh -huh. And then the film, and the film is this kind of extended flashback, this story that's being told. That Just the, the mystery of, you know, who he is and who Mildred is mm. and all the people around him, what exactly happened. It's a really fascinating one to follow. And even, even when he gets to the end, it's not quite sort of... Not quite clear. It keeps on changing right until the very end. Yes. It's quite a... I mean, did the flashback structure work for you? The fact that, you know, you think one thing, then you're taken back through a person's memory, and then you're taken back through another person's memory, and, you know, kind of... It's a, it's a flashback structure um, that explains the present. Yeah, I thought it worked well. I think... Interestingly, I was less interested in the mystery of who the, of the setup with the, the shooting and more interested in the character development. Uh -huh. I'd almost forgotten by the end of it that that's what we were trying to solve. Oh, how interesting. Um, because I think the characters were really interesting and you could see that and the, the daughter character who was a piece of work. Yes. Um, <laughs> that interplay between them and how that worked and, and kind of how much she could manipulate her mother was fascinating, I thought, yeah. um, and just how much the mother could forgive. Um, at the end, I kind of didn't really care uh -huh. who killed him. Um, I was just quite happy to watch their interplay. Okay, how interesting. So so really, kind of at the, at the core of it is really the mother-daughter relationship, yeah. right? Which is very weird. If you, I mean, you know, it's 
it's not I I can't remember I mean I you know I can think of other films where mothers love their daughters as much but I can't remember another film where a mother loves an evil daughter that's so evil that much <laughs> I don't think it's a massively unusual thing that kind of almost mother's guilt uh-huh um, I think it's probably less played out in big cinematic things, and you probably see more of it in things like soap operas. Right. Um, I feel like I've seen it a lot on things like EastEnders. Really? Um, yeah, it feels like quite a quite a bit of a trope that kind of sense of guilt that some some mothers might have, and they try and do their best for the daughter, which is something that that she brings up quite a lot in the film, mm. and just how far that can be pushed. Um, Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I, I of course know that, you know, I mean, there's a whole genre about maternal mal- melodrama, right? Yeah. It's about mother love and what mothers sacrifice for their children and so on. But I can't remember an instance where, you know, the mother is that enraptured by a daughter who's so evil. Yeah. Yeah. But so is that, is that... Is that common in, in soap operas and these standards? I mean, that, the, you know, because for me, Vida is, it's, I mean, she's really kind of the most evil figure of woman that I can think of in cinema. I, I mean, I've never seen somebody just like so bad. She's just kind of, kind of low-key bad though, isn't she? Like, she's clearly the villainess of the, the film, but she's... She never does anything that you would stereotypically expect to be a big, massive thing. It's all kind of digs and things. And in that sense, I think it's quite female-focused in that it doesn't have to be a big, massive kind of... I know there's a shooting in the film, but there isn't that big drama. It's that kind of almost chipping away, that manipulation that you see. And I think it's, yes, it's quite female. I guess so. I mean, it's a constant knocking down of her mother. Yes. And, you know, because her mother's always, her whole thing is trying to provide for her. And at one point, um, Monty says, everything you do is for your daughter. It's like, you know, so everything she's ever done is trying to provide for her daughter and give her the life that she, that she never had and so on. Um, and it's never enough for Vida. And it's that constant, every time they interact, there's, there's a comment, you know. Yeah. about who you are, the fact that you work for a living, that you're not given stuff, all that kind of thing. Yes. Constant knocking down of her mum. Yes, I mean... And in a way, I kind of thought, like, on the one hand, she's a really good mum, because she's always working hard and trying to provide and so on. On the other hand, she's kind of a really bad mum, because that kid needs some discipline. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I think, yeah, for me, the, the thing that I would have liked to have seen explored a little bit more, but I think would have taken away from the whole whodunit, is the difference between Vida and Katie. Mm. And the, I know they sort of say, you know, Katie loved you, so you don't try as hard. Yes. But to me, that kind of interplay is why, why the mother felt that she had to kind of keep trying. Yes. And try and win her over and just ultimately never did. Yes. Um, but actually kind of had that there with Katie, who was a more boyish character. Um, and actually the two women that she got on well with are, and this is not going to be terrible names, her kind of... The woman that says that Ida, yes, it's the, the second in command at the restaurant, yeah. Eve Arden, uh, who is who is portrayed as being a bit more masculine. She talks about being kind of depicted as being one of the boys, and then yeah. Katie, as you see her first, 
playing American football out with the boys in the in the street. And it's interesting that actually the two women that she gets on with both have, I thought, more masculine characteristics, whereas oh. Vida, who is very feminine in it, and she's always portrayed as beautiful and wearing lots of jewellery, is the one that she just can't seem to connect with. That's very interesting, I think. Yeah, because, you know, so the film is making an argument about, you know, femininity and mothers and daughters and so on. And then it's kind of... So I, you're, you're arguing, I suppose, that the women that the film makes sympathetic are those that have more, in quotation marks, masculine traits, including Mildred, arguably. Yeah, I think... I, I don't know if they're making them more sympathetic. I think they're making... They're making... Or Mildred seems to connect better with them. Right. She seems to... Or well, she doesn't connect with Katie, but Katie is, is kind of seen as a... Or she... A fairly kind of neither here nor there character, but she is, is portrayed fairly neutrally, uh-huh. if anything, slightly positively. But it's, it's that connection that Mildred doesn't seem to make, hmm. which I, I thought was interesting. Okay. The film has been um, spoken of in a, in a lot of ways, right? So, so it's a classic. Um, they originally thought they wouldn't be able to make it at all, this novel, uh, um, because, you know, it's adulterous and it has crime and all of these things kind of contravened the censorship board of the time. So there had to be kind of a lot of changes made yeah. Yeah, to be able to make it at all. And part of the way that they they got around it was this flashback structure, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of, you know, you split things amongst different people and therefore you can only see um, certain things. I think the film is... uh, So, you know, I was kind of looking at these things about the women's film and actually, you know, uh, one of the guy, one of the books I was reading was saying, well, you know, we tend to forget, but uh, Hollywood studios assumed that most of their customers were women, and so, uh, you know, that's why so many films were made for women. And actually, it's only the male critics who have privileged certain genres over others. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot written about the gangster film or film noir or, you know, uh, but actually kind of 90% of films have romances, right? Or about romance in some way, right? Either, yeah. You know, the primary or the secondary characteristic. And yet it's still seems to me unusual to have like these incredibly vibrant women and these incredibly powerful women mm-hmm. at, at the focus of this film. All that you mentioned, including uh, um, The Maid, yeah, mm-hmm. which is, you know, kind of, it's, it's, it's quite um, a substantial uh, uh, comic role, yeah, uh, that she plays. So I think that's kind of... Uh, um, you know, quite quite extraordinary to see. And now, I can't find her name, and she's one of the most famous black actresses in the whole history of Hollywood cinema. <laughs> she was in um, Gone with the Wind. Uh, let's see. Butterfly McQueen. Butterfly McQueen, sorry. Yeah. Brilliant name. I know. But, you know, kind of, that's... The, I mean, the, the film is focused on all of these women, isn't it? It's yeah. not... It's not the, the guys, really. Um, well, there, there is something interesting about the guys. Where um, so you're talking about the, um, Mildred getting on with more kind of masculine 
um, the more masculine characters amongst the women, as it were, yeah. and being kind of more masculine herself as well. She runs a business, she's a great, she, she lives the kind of American dream, which I guess is kind of associated with masculine qualities of kind of taking what you want and that sort of thing. Um, but the the men in the film are they're, they're varied, but they are generally less masculine in that in that respect. Yeah. You know, so you've got Monty who does nothing. Yeah. He lives a life of leisure, and by it's, life of leisure, it's not one that he kind of can afford. You know, he kind of he has a bit of money that he appears to have. It's like family money and mm. kind of family mansion and things. But he's selling this place. That that's that's why they meet because he wants to get rid of this place. He ends up taking money from Mildred when she's making a lot, and he's got nothing. Mm. And he kind of doesn't want to, you know, because she offers it him in public, and that's incredibly embarrassing for him. Mm. But he does, and and you know, all of a sudden. You know, very, very quickly, taking a bit of money that's very embarrassing becomes the thing that he does. He just takes yes. money on. Um, her husband, right at the start, who is, you know, a good guy and so on and so forth and kind of a good dad, um, doesn't have a job. That's how you're introduced to him. He doesn't yes. have a job and he doesn't really appear to be uh, well, looking he, for one. he does have a job at the beginning. They split in the real estate. That's the way he goes home. So you get the, the impression that he is a good guy, but not the most dependable. I thought it was... He's lying down on the couch at the start and she says... No, he walks in from the real estate. It's him and the... He gets fired. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Oh, right. Okay, sorry. I didn't pick up on that. Well, it's not even that he gets fired. It's actually Wally takes over. He's partners with Wally. Oh, right. There's a slump in the business and Wally takes over like he tries to do to Mildred later on. Right. At the end of the film. So the film has these interesting kind of parallels. But nonetheless, you know, uh, you get the impression that he's not, he's not the guy with the most pep. He's not yeah. the go-getter yeah. that you kind of want. Uh, but then the film also makes you question, you know, why be a go-getter? I mean, look where it gets Vita, who wants everything. I mean, you know, what's wrong with just wanting to have a house and a family and be okay? But, you know? he, but he didn't just want a house and a family because he had it bit on the side. Yes, which is very clear. Yeah. yeah, Mrs. Biederhoff. At first, I didn't think... At first, when she rings up, I thought, that can't actually be an affair because no one would be stupid enough to just ring up in the middle of the day. But clearly, the film just was like, no, that, that is how an affair works in these days. Though the film is so clever because you're not meant to be showing that, really. Yeah, like, kind of... You know, so the way that it goes about showing that yeah. without actually telling you that is, yeah. I think, quite clever, actually. And I like that they make Mrs. Biederhoff really nice. Yeah. 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 So she's not just some evil kind of other woman. <laughs> I quite enjoyed as well. It's surprisingly witty. I uh-huh. think a lot of the, the kind of wit in it as well works very well in for contemporary audience. Mm. So lots of the kind of jokes, particularly Wally, or whatever his name is. Yes, yeah, Wally um, Faye. He, yeah, I mean, some of his things just... Are, are great. Yeah, they're brilliant one-liners. Yes. Um, and they get around that kind of sense, because everybody knows what he's saying, but yes. he's not deliberately saying it. Um, so I think he has some great lines in it. He's probably the most interesting male character of the lot, mm. I think. Yes. Um, and I kind of think it's almost a shame you didn't get to see what would happen with him and Mildred. Yes, well, you know, is but he's so most, sleazy, though. Is he the most interesting, or is he just the most entertaining but I think it's kind of I think what's interesting about Monty is is the way that he is is kind of so useless. Whereas Wally is sort of the the more um, quote unquote traditionally masculine. 
you know, he kind of he, he does kind of go for what he wants. Um, doesn't always get it. I mean, he's always going after Mildred. Um, but he, you know, as you say, it's kind of it's very entertaining when he does and how he kind of deals with being rebuffed and keeps on trying and so on. Um, and it makes him entertaining, but I'm not sure it makes him interesting because he's not. It's not. He's kind of what I would expect from a certain male character. Yeah. In these films. Do you know I, what I, mean? I think I wanted to see that kind of cat and mouse thing play mm. out a little bit more. So you kind of get the impression that he's been after her for a while and she knows that and she kind of uses it to her advantage a little bit. Yes. And then he kind of tries to get one over, pardon the pun, on her through kind of firstly her husband and then secondly through her business. And you kind of get the impression that that interplay has been going on for a while. Mm. So I think it would almost be interesting to kind of see what happens once the credits roll and if that story continued. Yes, though you know at the end that really she loves her husband and she's going back to him. Yeah, she, which know. just felt like a bit of a cop-out, I thought. I don't know, actually. I, I, don't, I don't think it's a cop-out. I think that to me it makes sense that she would go with her husband. The film at all times tells you, you know, kind of um, how she feels about him and, you know, the trust and the comfort that they have with each other, actually. I mean, they go through a major trauma, which is, you know, the death of a daughter without blaming each other, which they could easily have done. You know, so I think I think for me, Mildred is enthralled with her daughter. She's in love with her yeah. daughter at the exclusion of everything else. But, you know, kind of, I don't think that anything, you know, that you see about the husband is, um, is so bad. And actually, I do think that there's also kind of some question about, you know, when, you know, how important Mrs. Biederhoff is and when the actual affair with her starts and you know then the joke about oh finally somebody married Mrs. Biederhoff yeah. right so um I mean I don't know I, I, I to me to me uh you know Mildred and uh, her husband kind of make a certain kind of sense the film yeah. has a kind of attitude to love and attraction wherein it's it's sort of even-handed, like you shouldn't be having an affair, but at the same time the film is kind of saying you are allowed to fall in and out of love with whoever you like, mm. in a way, you know. So, so it is a bad thing that he was having an affair with Mrs. Biederhofer, um, but that it's a mistake. It's not a kind of you know. I mean, it it breaks up their marriage, um, but it's not saying that she can never forgive him for. She remains in love with him. Oh, but see, I don't think it was just that. I think the affair was the kind of icing on the cake, but he makes a, a comment, doesn't it, about the, the cakes that she'd been making to afford the dress mm. that the daughter didn't like, and he'd kind of been like, you're showing I can't provide for you, and it's just... I would have liked to have seen, to get to the ending that it did, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more about him respecting her, because it just felt... To but, me, a bit of a cop out because but he has that scene. He learns to respect her when he when he gives her the divorce in the end. Yeah. He says, "I was, I was." He doesn't say I was jealous, but it basically was saying, you know, I was jealous and I didn't think you could make it, and I was being kind of harsh to you. But I watched you and realised that you can make a perfectly good girl of it, and I'm sorry for the way I behaved. Yeah, I just, yeah. He actually says it. He says, "You know, you can have the divorce. I was wrong. You know." Yeah, I just didn't buy it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, well, that's interesting, you know, because the, I think that is something that the, the film hangs a lot of its plot on you kind of buying it, in the sense that, you know, when, when they leave the police station, she could have left with Wally, 
right? Uh, she could have left alone, but no, she leaves with, you know, kind of um, the man she married when she was 17. Mm. Yeah. I think it would have been far too kind of outrageous, but I wanted her to kind of go and high-five Ida and right. then go off and start a franchise. <laughs> <Some or something. laughs> yeah, I wanted it to go like... Yeah. Um, um, I just... I, yeah, I totally get what you're saying, and, and she does that big wide-eyed thing whenever he appears throughout yes. the film. Um, and, and she just has some brilliant eyebrow raises, like so many bits within that film of just her eyes acting was mm. superb, I thought. Um, I, I want to throw something at you, because one of the ways that the film was adapted to be mm. able to be made, right, was that they lifted Mildred into a different class. So in the novel, she's really like a poor person, mm-hmm. right? And then kind of, you know, in order to make a film of her, they had to turn her into middle class, right? You know, somebody with a nice house in the suburbs and, you know, and so on. Um, and, yeah, and that's kind of the way that they could get around the censors because things happening to a middle class woman have, you know, different import than if it's a, to a really poor woman, yeah. right? But it seems to me that one of the things that I haven't seen discussed so much in relation to the film, to me, the, the one, almost like the central thing that the film is about, is actually class. You know, it's the source of all the conflicts, yeah. yeah, between the mother and the daughter, you smell of Greece, right? It's the only way that uh, Monty uh, is understandable, right? He's not, because he's, he's not someone who has more money, He's just of a different class of people, yeah. right? Um, and 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 kind of and you know, kind of part of the problem with Wally is you know he's really smart. He knows how to make a buck, right? But he belongs in every dive in town, right? Like you won't see him, you know, won't see him at the polo. <laughs> yeah, he'd be very new money, wouldn't he? Well, he'd be like, yeah, kind of, you know, new money, buy a gold toilet and bring a hooker in. <laughs> so, so what do you think? I mean, um, I, yeah, I think it'd be interesting to kind of read more about that level of, of class because they do it at several points, make a joke about middle class uh-huh. kind of things as though that's the kind of the lower structure. Yes. I don't know a massive amount about American class systems because there's very much that kind of no we don't have one and yeah but clearly clearly everyone everywhere does um I think it would almost be interesting because it that structure felt very much more almost British uh-huh. in a sense so that idea of the kind of crumbling stately home that nobody can afford yes um you know how many of those can you go and visit a weekend yes um it's very kind of like that and they get sold off and turned into hotels or kind of amusement centres. So I think that worked well. I think they could have made more of it, but I think it would have detracted from from some of the story. Um, I think it was interesting, again, it would have been almost interesting to have more working class characters within that to see the interplay between Vida, who was very much like, we cannot live like this. Yeah, it shouldn't be this, and you're like, well, that's your mm-hmm. that's your mother, like, so that half of you is that. Yes, they're but all working class characters as kind of background dressing quite a lot. Yes, yeah. you see them in the background, but um, particularly, um, and this is where the film uh, casts black actors as well for the most part. Yes, um, as yeah. maids and so on, 
um, maids, waitresses, you see them in the background of scenes, kind of, um, you know, waiting tables or cleaning dishes, that sort of thing. Right at the very end, I thought it was, it was noticeable that um, as they're coming out of the police station, it's like the second to last shot is um, the two of them walking out and right in the foreground, in the bottom right of the frame, are these two women cleaning the floor. Yes. Um, Very significant, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's not there for no reason. And this is, this is the absolute end of the film because the next shot is it, the sort of, you know, sunrise and the end. Yes. So I didn't kind of know what to make of that exactly. It was so privileged just to, to see it. Mm. Um, uh, the kind of, I don't know, the kind of comparison it was drawing or, or what, it was, what it was trying to say. Well, I think Laura's thing about, you know, um, the, you know, the class system and, you know, things that you associate with Britain, the crumbling mansion and so on, there's an element to that. But, you know, what is very American about the film is that, A, it acknowledges class. So, you know, I mean, she begins as a suburban housewife, really. Um, and then she becomes a waitress, which is going lower, Right, and then she ends up owning the mansion and buying the husband and whatever. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, the the figures that represent certain class, you can see how maybe certain British traditions influence that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, that class mobility, both up and down, yeah. right, and how quickly people maneuver through it, mm -hmm. right, I mean, that's very American. You know? Yeah fact that, you know, you can have a chain of restaurants like in Chum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suppose that social mobility that you would see in that, which was almost snakes and ladders-esque, mm. you wouldn't typically see in a, in a, in a British film or mm. show. I mean, if you look at something like Downton Abbey, you have the, the chauffeur that marries into, into the family and that is constantly commented on, and he is never really one of the family. He's always the chauffeur that married one of the daughters. Mm. Um, but it was interesting that actually Mildred was never the woman that married the what would have been an aristocrat had that been had yeah. that been anywhere mm. else. It was there there is a newspaper that's shown when you marry when she marries um, Monty. There is a newspaper yeah. headline that says businesswoman marries heir. That's it, business heir. Yeah. Like yes. Um, so, so it's it's it is tangentially a little bit mentioned, but you're right. The thing of it, America does have a class system. It does have kind of, it does have its sort of, uh, sort of dynasties. Mm. Yeah. You know, like like I mean, names like Kennedy and Bush and things Army like Hammer. Is it? <laughs> yes. Well, there you go. <laughs> you know, Roosevelt, things like that. Um, so it does have this, and if you get, you know, in sort of in the in the the original colonies kind of area as well, you do get these huge old mansions that are still. Sure. And, the, and, the, and some of them I'm sure are crumbling yes. um, so it does have that but the social mobility thing is I think it's right that it's, it's um, more active, more believable in American stories and, and I think that's uh, when I referred to Mildred as kind of living the American dream earlier, that's kind of what I'm referring to like, yes. the thing of you can start from absolutely nowhere you can, you know, the um, thing of um, accepting immigrants you know, bring, bring us your week or I can't remember what the phrase is but yeah. bring us blah 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 because this is where the American dream is, you can make anything of yourself. Yes. That's, not a, that's not something that is promised to English people. No. Um, but it is, an, it is of Americans. Let's move on a little bit to talk about um, other properties of the film, because one of the things that the film is famous for, it's just that it's a film noir, right? So it kind of it uses, you know, a lot of techniques like, you know, shadows and, 
you know, particular angles and so on. I mean, what did you make of it? Um, I like I liked them. I I think for me, it just gave um a real sense that you could you could see the characters, and there was a lot of kind of shots of the face doing very dramatic looks, uh, which I think helped kind of move the plot on a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, but just some real. Really great facial expressions going on, uh-huh. um, and again, some of the the actresses just their ability to say so much with just their eyes. I mm. thought thought was fascinating. Well, I want to ask you about Joan Crawford in a minute, Mike. Do you have anything to say about you know like the shots and the lighting? Look at it. Well, um, I, I was having watched a few curtis <laughs> now. Um, I was kind of looking, for, paying attention to certain things, particularly shadows mm. and particularly mirrors, um, and the way that. Curtis, I think what what's common about both of those, for the most part, is Curtis likes to use them to, as you've said, generate off-screen space. Mm. So what you can see in the frame is not not the end of the scene because if someone's casting a shadow but you can't see them, then they're somewhere else. Mm. And a mirror lets you see things that aren't that, that well, it, they are in the frame, I guess, but they're yes. kind of behind whatever. Yeah, um, behind the camera. Exactly behind the camera. Um, so and and it and, and that's all very kind of. It's all very elegantly done. Like, for instance, when um, the scene where she, uh, uh, Monty is romancing Mildred, um, it starts off on a shot of the, the kind of full-length wall mirror. Yes. Um, and she's kind of fixing her hair and the camera pans over to them. And then at the end of the scene, when they're embracing, it pans back because he, she says, turn the record off because it's, it's got to the end of yeah. skipping. And so the camera turns back so you can see the mirror again with the two of them still embracing yes. and the record that they're not going to turn off because yeah. they're oh, involved with each other. But that was a classic kind of what you would do now, fade away, isn't it? That's well, what rom-coms do, but... As no, I, th- I think that was really absolutely brilliant. You know, because so on the one hand, it's a kind of a cliche, right? They kiss while the record continues mm. turning. But I mean, it, as, I suppose what I'm trying to say is I think that sense has, has continued on because actually now if you watch anything that is a a 12-15 kind of rom-com yes. that fade away into kind of looking at the bit but not is quite commonly used. But this well, no, is I, not... I, I, think what, I think what that shot was doing though, what you were seeing in the mirror was the same as you would have seen, I mean, it was basically the same as you were seeing when you looked at them straight on, which was not very much because the kind of, his back was obscuring her. Mm. Yeah. So you know they're kissing. But, um, so what the, what the shot's achieving by panning away and going to the mirror is it, it, it brings in the record so she's she said, turn the record off, and it's not going to happen. And and the, it being in the frame is kind of emphasising that, like the record's right here, and they're kissing right there, and it's next to each other. Yeah, but I think that is commonly used. I think now it's commonly used, uh, which I think says a lot about that film. Is that actually it has inspired a lot of other kind of ones well, to tell the story of what you know is happening without really showing you it. It has, but I think this shot is actually doing more than that. It's greater than that. Because as it shows you them lost in passion, right? The record player kind of juxtaposing the continued embrace that they're not getting up to answer. What it's also telling you is this is the very first, this is the mirror that started off the film. The film starts with him being shot, right? And you have like the two plunk. So actually... This kind of desire that, yeah, that continues after the music goes is also kind of an intimation of death. His use of mirrors, Curtis, is 
It's elegant, and, and, and what I mean by elegant is that he uses them cleverly to, to allow you to look at two things at once and yes. draw an inference between them. You know, so like when she, um, when, when Mildred's looking for a job, um, there's that shot of, uh, she, I, I forget the kind of business that she's going to, but it's, she goes to the restaurant, yeah. Is, is that what has the mirror yeah. on the ground? Is that the restaurant? That's right, yeah. Um, and it has help wanted on top. No, no, it's like a shot or something. Oh, yeah, I thought it was a shot. I thought it was before she got to the restaurant. Ah. There's just yeah. some shot that she's standing with, outside. With the words on the bit. That's it. Yeah. And the mirror is kind of on the ground, kind of pointing up, sort of angled up. So the camera is looking down at this mirror and you see her within it, but you also know that this is, this is a, it, it's the shot that she is kind of looking at, um, you know, kind of having to accept that she's going to look for employment at. Yes. Um, so you, you could do that with, with a couple of cuts, a couple of shots, whatever, but it's, it's putting them together and kind of enclosing her within this sort of very narrow, it's a very narrow, wide mirror. Mm. It, it, it's an extraordinary image, aside gives, from everything else. I suppose it's the sense of kind of, she's, she's not literally, but that kind of idea of her being in the gutter and having to, yeah. to pull herself up, it's... Yeah, I think thing. that's part of it. Yeah, and there's another one with, with the with the use of shadows right at the very beginning when she's kind of, um, it seems trying to frame um, Wally for the murder. Uh, all the doors are locked, and you realise that something's going on. Then he sees the body, and he has to get out. And there are all these shadows being cast, huge shadows on the wall. Yes, and there's one shot in particular where. Um, you see this, I think you've seen the shadow first, I can't remember, but he's in the centre of the frame at one point, and he's only sort of half height of the frame maybe, but the shadow is all the way up the wall and onto the ceiling. Yes. And it's, it's only a shadow of himself, but he looks so small in the scene, and he's yes. trapped, and yes. he's, you know, and at, at this point in the film you think, like, well, he's for it, clearly, yes. because she's done, she's she framed him, yes. and she's trapped him. And that's it. Curtis is so brilliant. I mean, that scene is fantastic, because that sense of being disorientated, confused, trapped alone, right, it, it's conveyed through a whole series of shots, the, the spiralling staircase going up, mm. right, you know, kind of that sense of like, yeah, of confusion really, yeah, is kind of conveyed so well through the, that kind of concatenation of shots. Mm. Uh, and each of them is visually arresting. And the thing that you were saying about, you know, the mirrors, aside from the off-screen space, I think what you described is that they're also very expressive. Right, so they're not just showing you something that is taking place off camera, but actually they're showing you something that is taking place off camera and adding something on. Like, you yeah. know, so what you said, right, she's kind of being lowered to finding this job and actually having the mirror be in the bottom kind of conveys that, right? Yeah? Whereas, you know, if you just kind of seen the help wanted ad, it wouldn't quite have conveyed this thing of... You yeah, know. That would give you the information that yeah. she is looking for a job in the kind of place that puts up a help wanted sign. Yeah. But, the, but as you say, the, actually putting her below the camera on the ground yes. is much more expressive. It conveys a feeling or, yeah, kind of, you know, something mm. that much more. Um, what did you think of Joan Crawford? Have you seen other Joan Crawford films before this? I knew you were going to ask that. I don't um, think I have. No, no yeah. I am terrible with names. Um, <laughs> I don't think I have either. Um, uh-huh. If um, you had, you'd have remembered. Yeah, uh-huh. I, feel, I feel like I would have remembered just the expression with the eyes, which completely kind of taken with. Um, I think it was fascinating to see how measured she was. I suppose as a character, Mildred is always trying to kind of do the best, but she's 
she's always kind of sat there considering, but you see a lot in that mm. kind of in what she's doing. So she's not overly dramatic, but you see kind of what's going on. So that whether it's a, a kind of a fear or a twinkle in her eye or something, I think. Yeah, I, I know I've said it before, but I, I genuinely think she could just tell so much just by what she's doing with her eyes. That's yes. fascinating. Yes, it's quite amazing, actually, what she does with her eyes. Mm. Mike, what did you think of her? Well, I made a comment during the film that when she, as I said, when she's kind of looking off into the into space, when, particularly when her daughter's being, um, you know, pretty nasty or pretty self-centred, um, that you kind of think, like, oh, so she's going to kill her too, or she, she wants to. <laughs> like, at this point, you kind of think that Mildred is the murderess. Um, yes. I think she's very beautiful. Like, she's got a very striking, beautiful face, right, that's kind of unlike any other, like those cheekbones, yeah. you know, and the eyes and so on. And on the other hand, there's something, like, almost scarily strong about what she represents, yeah, I wondered if they were doing that with the clothing as well. Like, I don't know if anybody else noticed the shoulder pads. Mm, I yes. wanted to see just how big the shoulder pads <laughs> would go because that kind of fur that she's wearing, I was like, how much of that is going out? But yes. it, it was almost the more control she had. So when she's first introduced, she's wearing very normal kind of housewife clothes. And then as she has more power, the shoulder pads just seem to get bigger. Yeah, the shoulders the get wider and wider. Well, she's just they? like this triangle in a way that just, it kind of... Which is kind of masculine, the broad-shouldered thing. But mm. it kind of almost becomes a caricature during when mm. she's wearing that, that fur. But it was fascinating to see how that happened. And then when she's wearing the kind of almost masculine-esque clothes, mm. so she's wearing a lot of things that kind of almost look like a, a suit, but with, with skirts, um which I thought was fascinating to kind of add to that edge of, of femininity and masculinity, but also made her look a bit scary sometimes when she's very kind of in control and very up to the neck, whereas Vida is wearing sequins and, and shiny things. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I thought that was fascinating. That the, the costumes really kind of worked, I thought. What do you think of the contrast between Vida and Mildred, right? Because, I mean, obviously they're mother-daughter, right? And obviously uh, Mildred loves her immeasurably. But I think in the film they're also representing two different kinds of women, right? And the film judges each yeah. has, or has a point of view on each. I think it's, it's kind of interesting that Vida is... <clears throat> like, everything that Vida... Um, the way that she behaves and everything that she kind of thinks um, has something to do with uh, men, and the way she appears to men and the way that she will affect men and the way that she can get things from men and kind of use them to elevate her lifestyle and so on. Um, and I don't think that's the case with Mildred. I don't even think it's the case with Mildred that she kind of behaves in a certain way to, uh, to kind of beat men at their own game, you know, because actually like, when it comes to the business world, um, you don't really see her in, the, in a, that kind of competitive mode. You see her building a business for herself. I mean, I guess it only gets competitive towards the end when um, <clears throat> when Wally uh, kind of manoeuvres and tries to take mm. over. But that's only business. because of Monty. Yeah. Um, but like, in terms of sort of... when you, In terms of building the business and that sort of thing, um, you know, I guess she, she kind of does kind of manipulate Monty because they know that Monty clearly needs the money and so they can... Um, make this deal 
to get the rest, get the building a year before they have to pay for it, so they can make the money and so on. Mm. Um, and but he'll she go for it. Something, she? Right, she offers him something. So there's not there's not a huge kind of competitive thing, and it's not, and I don't think it's a kind of masculine, feminine, um, man v woman you know, kind of competition thing. Basically, building the business is something that is completely personal to her. Well, it's her way. I mean, the reason I think there's an interesting both. Um, Similarity and difference. So, on the one hand, they're both alike in that, you know, they both want to be successful, right? Like, kind of... But Mildred wants to be successful for Vida. Vida just wants all the finer things in life. And in fact, you know, this thing about men, I think kind of from her, men are a way of getting the finer things in life. Mm -hmm. But I think she's much more interested in the finer things in life you know, polo and jewellery and going to the right places than she is actually in men. There's that very revealing conversation right at the start when uh, uh, the other daughters are asleep and they're sitting on the bed talking to each other and, um, and the conversation is about love and marrying someone for love. And Mildred basically says, you should marry for love. Uh, that's the point of marriage. Well, at that point, her, her, her daughter wants to sell her, yeah. <laughs> basically sell her so, so yeah. she can have the finer things in life, yeah. right? So, you know... I mean, it's just... But then it comes back... Um, I forget, forget exactly what the moment is, but it does come back where um, uh, uh, Vida has a moment of kind of returning to that question of should you marry for love or not? Well, and, the thing with... Is it Teddy? The, yeah, the guy the, that she briefly marries? Yeah. And, and she, 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 does, she does kind of change her mind and she does kind of come around to what her mum... I forget what I forget the moment though. I mean that's annoying. I forget the line or the, or the moment it is, but I'm sure there's a point where she it's quite explicit that she has changed her tune on the reasons to marry. Well, Vida, you mean? Yeah, I'm sure there was a moment. I, th- I don't think she does. I, I don't think she does either. No, I think. To find a I, <laughs> I think when she when she briefly marries, I'm going to call him Teddy because in my head yes. that's his name. It's about getting money out of him and pretending that she's pregnant when mm. she's not. And he's saying, like, why do we have to get divorced? Yeah, he's, he's cl- in love with her. Yeah. <laughs> and she uh, is yeah. clearly using him. And yes. then she's been flirting with Monty the entire time. Yes. And then when they're caught, she says that, I thought you were going to marry me. You said you were going to marry me. Yeah. But I don't buy that it was a love thing. I, I think I, it, it felt very much like a, you have the status... I believe that you can keep me in the way that, that she has become accustomed to. But it didn't ever feel like she'd... She was capable of feeling love, because I don't think if, if she was capable of feeling love that she would have treated her mother in the way that she did. And in fact, Monty um, treats her in the way that she thinks of her mother, as just like this low-class chippy that... Yeah. <laughs> you know, so again, kind of, there's an interesting kind of mirroring or similarities between the mother and the daughter. So obviously, you know, they're very different. One loves the other one madly. The other one is kind of, like, using the mother as, yeah. You know, but in many ways, I mean, they both want success, though, for different reasons. You know, they're also very different. One works for it, kind of. The other one um, manipulates in order to get it. Right, yeah, but kind of there's a lot of this, this very interesting similarities between them. But it's interesting because it is looking at su- success and you sort of said, you know, how does it treat them? And Avida wants success and she wants to marry well and she wants to find somebody that will keep her in the way that she is, is used to. But ultimately, 
ends up in prison, so ends yes. up penniless. And her mother, who works for it and tries to, essentially, the same thing happens. Loses it all. Loses it all. So you kind of like... It seems to be suggesting that either of them isn't going to work. Well, again, I think there's very interesting similarities because you can also imagine Mildred, now that her husband's dead, doesn't have to sell the whole place because he was the reason he was selling her out, right? But now that he's dead, you know, she's the widow, so she gets back her business. You think Molly would ha- have that after she, he, well, she tried to frame him? Or do you think that he would see that as, as her having I'm, some of the... And that, that, not manipulation, but that kind of nouse that he'd done. I think Wally, well, Wally was only doing it because the husband was selling her out. Because Wally said, you know, your husband is selling the business. And in order, if he gets 30%, I go under. So she says, so in this way, only I go under. And he says, that's right. But it wasn't coming from Wally. But do you think he would have kept that business relationship Given that I think I think they would. They clearly have known each other since childhood, Wally and her, right? I mean, I think there is a comfort there. That's one of the interesting things. I don't think I don't think Wally's an evil guy. No, but I just think if somebody tried to frame you for murder, whether or not you'd be like, eh, that's all right. Well, I think he understands. I think, I think he's quite forgiving. Yeah, he tries it on with her twice a week. Yes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's a that's a lot of like. Forgiveness. <laughs> I suppose, like, I kind of almost want to see a deleted scene of those two meeting again after, because I've... Post-credit scene, like yeah. Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I think what I find interesting about the film is how easily and how acceptingly Vida um, accepts her, uh, um, you know, being... Kind of almost fall from grace. Yeah, her fall from grace. Because, you know, the scene with when the father takes Mildred Pierce to the nightclub, yeah. I mean, I, that's so powerful because basically, I think that's a 40s equivalent of, you know, a father taking a mother to show her daughter working as a prostitute, right? Like, you know, because actually that's clearly what's being indicated, right? Yeah. Like, you know, so she's a singer you know, in a, in a low dive. But, you know, from what she's wearing and the men's reactions to her, you know... The sailors. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's kind of the equivalent of, you know, saying your daughter's become a whore, right? Like, yeah, uh, and here she is at work, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's very powerful. Yeah, she's not a waitress. She's, yes. Yeah. She's something lower, right? Like, yeah. Um, the bit that I was referring to earlier, I found the script. Uh, and I, I kind of... I, well, no, I, I checked, because I had to check. And I kind of mm-hmm. remembered it accurately, but at the same time... It's when Mildred's been told that they're getting married and then she admits we actually have, we're already married. Mm. And then she kind of breaks down and says, so, you know, I made a mistake. I didn't know how to tell you. She says, don't you love Ted? And she goes, no, mother. Maybe we don't belong in a family like that. Blah, blah, blah. But then the next scene is where... Contradicts it. Yeah. It's where she goes, oh, I'm pregnant. So clearly she's just being a lying little... Yeah. Little hussy. <laughs> Throughout. So, right. So, no, she, I mean, she hasn't changed her tune, has she, by the end of the film? She's, no. Because then she's going off with, um, with Monty as well. We'll think yes. she is. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's almost like incest, right? That's like really bad because, you know, by this point, Mildred is married to Monty. Oh, but they've been setting that up from the beginning. You could see that. So, yeah. Yes. But that doesn't mean it hasn't been creepy. I mean, I was creeped out from the start. Yeah. When I saw I'm... his little moustache, to be honest. I've never trust men in films with moustaches. <laughs> he became a kind of a sex symbol with this film, actually. Really? Well, then yes. I have nothing but opprobrium for the people of the 1940s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> he did. You know, and actually he's shown, like women are normally shown in this period, right? Like, you know, he's shown in his bathing suit with his shirt off, with those legs. Uh, yeah, I did think you know, that, that um, seemed an interesting look. Yes. Yeah, it's the cardigan and then suddenly he appears and I'm like, he forgot his trousers. Well, yeah. you know, kind of the living chaps. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, I, I, I asked Celia because um, as we know Celia's been on the podcast before he's a huge 40s fan I, I've asked her mm. what she thinks of Mildred Pierce and she's been telling me uh-huh. um, so I thought I might just read out a little bit because she said um, well for one thing she said she only saw it for the first time recently uh-huh. um, which I thought was interesting how remiss of her yeah. she said I wasn't interested in that kind of thing at all when I was younger women's pictures or whatever but it was super engrossing I felt like I'd really lived after it she says um she says, I never used to like this kind of thing. I was 100% screwball comedies and film noir, and melodrama was just like, ooh, not for me. But, like, it's not the thing itself, but Joan Crawford, if you're in the comedy mode, you don't rub shoulders with her often. Same with Bette Davis. But I really like them both. It's not like they're relatable or something, because they're not. They're elemental. Joan Crawford is, like, under this extreme tension, the chasm between that sweet butter-wouldn't-melt thing she had, uh, she'd started to do by this point and the balls of brass woman she really was, and you're just willing her to snap. I love the perversity of her, the monstrous feminine, but like it's like she doesn't have time for that shit, for the constraints of being a woman in 1941. 45. Well, maybe she's talking about something else at that point. She, yeah. says, she says, I don't know that any of this is specific to Mildred Pierce, but the it idea is, of Joan Crawford being is, kind of yeah. elemental yes. is an interesting one. It kind, of, it kind of fits. And actually, the period, though, is important, right? Because... 1945, 1945, the war is over, all the men are returning from work, and they're kicking the women out of the jobs. From work. Right? Yeah, from so they're all, you know, they're all having to return yeah. to be housewives, right? Mm-hmm. So this idea of this businesswoman who started a chain of restaurants, and it has kind of also a particular resonance, right? Yeah. So, yes, but that's a great quote from uh, Celia, actually. Good. Yeah. I'll tell her. Um, I, maybe a last thing to talk about is... Is the is well? I have one thing I'd like to bring up. Okay, but if you can, if, if you want to go ahead. Yeah, I, I just want to talk about Vida a little more because you know the ending where they're taking her to jail and she tells her mother, "I'll manage," right? <laughs> is like again, I find it so powerful, right? Because here's this woman who's been striving for money, position, um, appearance. Like you, you know, she tells uh, uh, Mildred oh, you know, you were born above a shop or something, your mother was a laundress or whatever mm-hmm. she says, right? And kind of all of a sudden she's going to prison and it's like, I can cope with this, I, you know, <laughs> right? Like, I thought that was so interesting. It's a sign of both her evilness and also her powerfulness, you know, that she's going to go to jail and she actually doesn't seem very phased at all. She'll just manage. It's a, it's a different place for her to scheme at. I, I feel like it's just another power structure for her to conquer and yes. and find mm-hmm. her kind of willing mother-esque figure within there. Yes. Um, so yeah, Vida Goes to Prison would be a great film. Yeah. <laughs> Vida Pierce. <laughs> King of the Prisoners. Actually, that would, that's yeah. such a good idea. Yeah. I, I wish somebody would make that film. Vida in Prison. Yeah. <laughs> Vida Prison Mama. <laughs> <laughs> So you were going to say something? Yeah, there's one. I, I, right back at the start of the conversation, um, we talked about uh, the, the the mystery of the setup of who this guy is and why he was shot. Um, and and you said, Laura, that it, it never oh, really no. occurred to you, never occurred to you to come back to it. It didn't not occur to me. I just right. didn't care. 
Okay, so yeah, okay, fair enough. That's well, that, that's that's still an interesting point. That you didn't care, like, um, because it wasn't like it was on my mind the whole time. It wasn't like I was constantly thinking, okay, but how does this relate to what happened at the end? Like I was just in the story and I was yes. going with it, you know. Um, but there were points where I was kind of going, okay, so that's why she killed him, you know, like 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 towards the end when he's going to take over the business, you think, okay, well she's done it to protect her business. Yes. Um, or at least I did. So like it was kind of slightly on my mind. Um. And it reminded me of, there's a short story called The Husband Stitch, which I read probably last uh-huh. year, which is freely available, and it's really, really worth reading. It's, it's by Carmen Maria Mercado. Are you going to link it in the comments? I'll probably do that, yeah. That would be great. It's called The Husband Stitch, and it's, it's a story, I can't remember all the details, but it's um, basically, the, it's told in the first person uh, from a woman's perspective, and it says that she was born with this green ribbon around her neck, and... You know, you're not told what it does or why it's there or where it came from or anything like that. But it's just about how people relate to it. Every woman has one. It's not necessarily around their neck, something's around their ankle, something's around their wrist. Every woman has a green ribbon somewhere on their body, though, in this story. And kind of guys that she goes out with, they want to know what it's about. You know, they, they, they're tugging at it and they want to touch it. She's like, no, no, you don't get to touch it. And, they, and, and again, this was something that I talked about with Celia. We talked about this story and... I, I said I totally wanted to know throughout the story what the Green Ribbon was about. I wanted to know what it was mm. and why it was there and so on. Like all the guys in the story. And Celia said that at no point did that occur to her to ask that question. Which I thought was yeah. really interesting because for her it was about, it was about how, how the woman related to her and what it meant for her life and so on and so forth. Mm. But not about actually what it kind of specifically was. And I think in a way that's kind of similar to our differing reactions to yeah. the central mystery in Mildred Pierce. Yeah. You know, kind of, I had a, I had a slightly more practical uh, approach to it, I think, maybe. You know, you, yeah. you kind of said, okay, well, that's just set up and I don't care. Well, in part, I think I've watched so many films that I'd already guessed who <laughs> okay. it was, and I was like, that's probably going to be it, and it was. Um, but also, I think, I think you're correct. I think it, it was me, the interest was was less in who did it mm. and why and, and more about them and their characters and their interplay and what that would mean yeah then going on um, because it's interesting then because it's kind of it is as you say a, a, a woman's film about all these women interplaying in interesting ways but the the setup right at the start is something that i think is appealing to guys well it's a film noir mm. right and and actually you know, part of the reason why it's kind of still so striking is because usually there would be a man, I think, playing um, Mildred's role, really. Mm. You know, kind of, you know, so... Uh, and Vida would be like the femme fatale. So it's an interesting kind of spread where the femme fatale is a daughter, you know, yeah. and, the, and the noir hero is you know, a woman, and this mad love that leads to destruction is a mother-daughter love, right? I mean, that's what's so interesting and weird about the film. It actually makes me think that the, that the flashback structure is not necessary for the film to function. I don't yeah. think that, you know, like I said, I, did, I was kind of thinking about it, but it wasn't, I don't think it would have affected my interest in the story had there not been this kind of thing of, and at some point we're going to get to the murder. You know, if it had been a, a very straight-told story where you start off with uh, Mildred, her husband loses his job, and so on and so forth. If it, if it was just a flashback um, told straight, and then at the end a murder happened from sort of out of nowhere, um, okay, it might not fit the kind of yeah, the, 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 
certain film noir tropes, but I don't think it would affect the functioning of the story. It might make it better in some ways. Well, um, Todd Haynes obviously did the miniseries with Kate Winslet, right? And it is done very differently okay. because, you know, kind of, yeah, with a, in a, in, without censorship, you could do it very differently. Mm. You know, and there are kind of very considerable differences. They're both great. They both kind of, but they work on a different level. You know, and the story is not told through flashbacks. Right. I think, you know. for me, I was thinking about it in context of having seen Widows recently. I know you guys have, have done the two podcasts on it, but for me, the thing that I, whenever anybody asks me about Widows, is that I sort of went, actually, it feels really carefully paced, but mm. the interesting thing to me was not the heist, because the heist, to me, just felt like every other heist movie I'd ever seen. <laughs> it was the women and how they reacted and how they did what they did. Yes. And to me, that was the same with this. It was, I was less interested in the who done it angle but i was interested in in the characters and how they came to be or what they did or mm. how they behaved that makes sense to me i understand yeah. that yeah. yeah okay um you see there is a precedent for films that pick up on a genre and do something else with it <laughs> I mean, I, actually one thing that i should have said in that podcast where you said you know why is this why, why do you think this isn't that unique hold on is, does that mean you're going to go and see it a third time no absolutely not um, <laughs> it's, um, it's, you know, uh, horror you're always talking about and it's a, it's quite a common kind of point of view that that horror um allows is, is a way for films to talk about kind of social issues or, or whatever they might be through through a genre convention mm. Um, that's that's not very common. Sci-fi, I think, does similar things, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and sci-fi and horror actually quite often kind of cross pollinate. Um, but you know, so I think I, I think that was something that I, that was something that I should have brought up when we were talking about weirdos. I I still think that what you're the way that weirdos does it, what it's doing is really interesting. Mm. But the fact that it does it is not the interesting thing. The fact that it sets up a heist and then talks about other things is not the interesting part. It's how it does it. Okay, well, but, you know, yeah. you couldn't have the how without the what. So, like, they're interrelated, really. Um, and, and, likewise, and likewise, this film, just yeah. to kind of bring back yes. the discussion into it. Because, you know, it is really kind of an intermingling of noir, yeah, of a crime film, mm-hmm. of melodrama, of a woman's film. And actually, it's kind of that particular iteration or performance of, you know, or kind of you know, bringing together all of these genres through this story that is one of the things that I think still makes the film kind of so fascinating and compelling and mm. it still kind of keeps it working, really. And I guess one other thing that I found interesting about it was that uh, from the very little I knew about it, I mean, you basically gave us a pricey before we watched it of this is a, a, one of the great film noirs. Um, and in a way, I was kind of watching going, where is the noir? You know, like it's not, um, it's, it's not kind of heavily about crime. It's not about kind of gangsters and kind of competing sort of macho things, which I think is something that I really associate with noir. And also it's kind of, I mean, visually it's kind of quite light. So I think another thing you expect from noir is, is kind of dark visuals. And this and is heavy very visuals. shadowy. The shadow is everywhere. It does, it does do shadow quite a lot, yeah. to be fair. But I mean, you know, apart from that very opening, and I guess the, the, the uh, few scenes you get in the police station... Um, you know, I'm kind of thinking like, where is the noir? Like, what's interesting about it is that it, it, it does depart kind of so much, but it is, you, but it is still there. You know, the whole thing about the femme fatale and mm. um, and and the way that these people kind of, the way that the way that these people kind of compete, I guess, um, has that kind of has that darkness to it. Yes, it's very dark. I mean, think about it. You know, it's a film 
it has a murder, it has gigolos, <laughs> it had people only obsessed with money. It's a film in which, you know, a daughter tries to take her mother's husband, mm. you know, and is clearly sleeping with him, you know. Um, it's a film which kind of, you know, which has the husband kind of sleeping with, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, the neighbor. Um, it's a film in which kind of people are basically interested in money mm. and kind of, you know, get rid of anything in the way of that. Right, so this combination of money, sex, crime—it's very noir, <laughs> right? But but not but not sort of not so much so that it's you know it still has that kind of combination with more of a like a family drama. Sure, it's that it is that like also. Yeah. If um you know if it were kind of straight up noir, people would be much more ruthless. I think. Yeah. You know, mm. feel? I feel like there were less kind of looming shots apart from that kind of opening <laughs> bit. I expected. More looming. I do oh, think that, well, I, that's interesting. I do think there's a visual likeness to it that is more associated mm. with with a well, like a like a like a a, a a woman's film, perhaps, or like a melodrama about family and so on. But to yeah. me, that almost—it's not it, heavy on that darkness of style. But to me, style. that almost made it darker because it was, aside from the murder, quite ordinary. Mm. In well, sense. I don't know about that. I mean, you know, I'd be interested if you see it again because. You know, all of the opening sequence enshrouded in darkness. Yeah. You know, the scene in the beach house at the beginning enshrouded in darkness. There's so many nightclub scenes which are kind of completely shadowy. A lot of the scenes in the police station are completely shadowy. Even things like when, when Mildred uh, gets Wally to uh, agree to help her set the restaurant, that's all done in shadows. You know, there's kind of... You have the shadow thrown on the wall of Wally and Mildred making the deal, you know, basically clapping hands. So I think, yeah. I, you know... Uh, that, 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 that to me feels like, and this, this is probably splitting hairs, but um, those elements are definitely there and they're noticeable. But, for instance, when you see shadows being cast on walls, people leaving rooms and so on and so forth, which you do see quite a lot, they do feel like sort of stylistic film noir intrusions mm. into an otherwise normal world. As opposed to a film noir world that you're totally enveloped in, mm. there's a there's a actually a, a sort of not clash but a, a a meeting of kind of normality and darkness. Visually. Okay, well that's into that. I mean, I you know I find that interesting because, um, yeah, I have to think about that. It's not it's not the way I see it, mm. right? Because basically the whole the whole film is a murder happens. You see her about to commit suicide. You know, and then she's taken in by the police, and really the whole thing ostensibly happens at the police station, right? And then kind of you get flashbacks. So, um, you know, I kind of, I see it as a very dark and shadowy and enclosed world, really, yeah. Um, and that's kind of what I remember uh, from it. Um, so, but would you recommend it? Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, yes? I, there's already some people that I think I've... Go and wave copies of DVDs up. Okay, mm -hmm. well, um, so that was great. Thank you very much, Laura. Good. Good. I'm glad, Mike, because you know, kind of, I felt I was dragging Mike into this. Uh, so, uh, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies. We're on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, and YouTube to listen to. You can follow us on Twitter uh, at eavesdrop movies and on Facebook. And our website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com with the full list of all the movies we've done. Yes. Uh, this is our last uh, podcast on Curtis films, uh, at least for a while, though we are going to be looking at classic films uh, as a regular feature, though Mike has 
dibs on at least the next four choices. Yeah. <laughs> some, of them might, some of them you might not count as classics as well. I mean, there's one from about 2008. Uh-huh. There's one from, uh, well, I'm, I want to watch Hook. Right. So you know, for me, that's a classic. Right. So it's not, it's not, not exactly classic. A loose but definition of classics. Not exactly come. classics, but, I, but I, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to kind of close it off to like either we see films that are out at the cinema or films from the 1940s. No, 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 I'm with you. We should see absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's so, interesting. Um, so on on the list of podcasts on the website, I've, I've called it classics and catching up because yeah. you know yeah. Hook is not a classic to anyone but me, but it is fun to catch up with. Fairly big childhood classic for most people. Yeah, yeah. let's hope so. Of a certain generation. <laughs> <laughs> right, thank you very much. Bye bye. <laughs> oh, bye. <laughs> <laughs> okay, excellent. Let me open the window a little bit because I think I've got the heat on too high. <laughs>